Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me. A few words about 365 days with the Tudor Queens to begin with. The early bird offer ends on the 1st of August 2023, so if you've been thinking about signing up for this course, now's the time. Over 12 months in 2024, participants will come together and contribute to a supportive and inspiring online community of individuals who will share in a very unique learning experience, one that will ultimately deepen their understanding of 16th century queenship. Participants will take part in an in-depth exploration and study of the lives of the Tudor Queen's consort and regnant, from the uncrowned Queen Margaret Beaufort to England's virgin Queen Elizabeth I. The stellar list of contributors includes Dr. Tracy Borman, Dr. Owen Emerson, Dr. Nicola Tallis, Dr. James Taff, Dr. Elizabeth Norton, Heather Darcy, Dr. Emma Louisa Cahill-Marron, Gareth Russell, Dr. Linda Porter, Peter Steffel, Dr. Valerie Schutte, Dr. Estelle Peronk, David Lee and Sandra Vasoli. For further details, testimonials from current participants and to book your place on this unique experience, please visit my website on thetutortrail.com. As always, I'd also like to acknowledge and thank the generous listeners who continue to support Talking Tudors on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors Patreon community. Please visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Now is actually a great time to join because you will receive a month free when you pledge annually. Join the Talking Tudors patron family to instantly unlock access to exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and to enter patron-only monthly giveaways. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Do check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. Now on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that Professor Micheline White is joining me today to talk about Catherine Parr's literary works and Micheline's very exciting discovery of some previously overlooked marginalia written by Henry VIII. Micheline is Associate Professor in the College of the Humanities and the Department of English at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. Her research focuses on women and religious literature and culture in Tudor England. She's edited three volumes of Essays, 
In 2018, she co-edited Early Modern Women's Bookscapes, Reading, Ownership, Circulation. She's the editor of the English Women, Religion and Textual Production, 1500 to 1625, and of secondary work on early modern women writers. Her work on Catherine Parr has appeared in the Times Literary Supplement and in academic journals, and has been featured in interviews with the CBC, Radio's Tapestry and the Anglican Communion News Service. She's completing a monograph on royal women and the production of the Tudor Book of Common Prayer. Let's dive straight into our conversation. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Micheline. How are you? Good, thank you. It's really lovely to have you on the show. And I suppose a really good place to to start is you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background. So I'm a professor, an associate professor at Carleton University in Ottawa. Uh, I trained in an English literature department. So I teach Renaissance literature in a, in a great books program called the Bachelor of Humanities, which is at Carleton. Um, I'm also cross-appointed in the English department and I supervise some students in the, uh, co-supervise students in the history department. So my research over the last many years um, has always focused on English women and religious writing. More recently, I've been publishing on women's book history and marginalia. And in the last 10 years, I've focused most of my attention on Catherine Parr. So her writing, tracking down some of her sources, looking at her marginalia, and also studying some of the afterlife of some of her works. Wonderful. And it's it's so good that we're talking about Catherine Parr, because obviously it's very topical at the moment. So I'm really excited. And we are here to chat about a number of discoveries, let's say, that you've made over the years relating to Catherine Parr's literary works, including one that's really exciting, which is that you've found some previously overlooked marginalia uh, written by Henry VIII. So can you tell us about this, please? Yeah, sure. So several years ago, I set out to, to try to understand Parr's first book, which was a translation called The Psalms or Prayers. And it's a very long book, and Parr must have been very busy. And so I wanted to figure out why she had bothered to translate this book from Latin into English, which must have been a, a very time consuming project. So I started by studying some of the regular printed editions, you know, using databases, looking at facsimiles, and then also looking at some copies in the British Library. But I learned that there were also some gift copies. And I learned about this from Janelle Mueller's 2011 scholarly edition of Parr's of Parr's works. And I eventually learned that there was a gift copy at the Wormsley Library. Now, this copy was one that Janelle had actually not been able to see, and so she hadn't looked at it. And so I was really excited when the library uh, said that I could go and consult it. You know, I'll just emphasize right off the bat. So these gift copies are just spectacular. So this is an octavo book. It's printed on vellum, so it's very expensive. You can feel the vellum. It's been ruled. And the title page is illuminated, hand illuminated. So it was printed, but then obviously was Parr hired a hand illuminator. So the title page compartment has been illuminated with gold, paint, red, green, pink, and bright blue. The verso of the title page also has a spectacular hand-drawn and hand-illuminated copy of Henry's coat of arms on a beautiful verdigris background. Uh, there's an imperial crown, there are gold tassels. Henry made his presence known. The first drop cap 
is also has been overpainted with gold paint and a Tudor rose. And then every, all of the drop caps starting the Psalms, because the book is comprised of 17 Psalms, all of those opening drop caps also have a blue rectangular background. Like in books of hours, people will be familiar with that decorative program. Anyway, I was just sort of, you know, marveling at how beautiful this book was and thinking I really need to think about this. Um, I didn't expect it to be so sumptuous. But I thought, I've come all this way, before I leave, I should really look at every page. So I just sat there and thought, I'll look at every page. And when I was about, it's about 180 pages. When I hit the 65th page, I saw a handwritten manicule. So that's a a marking that some of your listeners may be familiar with. Um, It's just a a pointed finger with an index finger pointed that's often found in the margins of books. Uh, Very common in, in the early modern period. And I like to think of them as sort of, early modern post-it notes, yes. right? So, or, or highlighting. So these are passages that, that you think are important and that you want to come back to and that you're emphasizing, you're pointing like, this is important. You know, I was thought, wow, this is great. So a couple of pages later, there was another graphite manicule, very similar, uh, also in the right-hand margin. And in total, I ended up finding 14 markings, which I had not expected to find. So 10 of them, 11 of them are in graphite, or 12 of them are in graphite, two of them are in ink. So these were obviously made at different sittings, but there are three different kinds of markings. So as I mentioned, uh, most of them are manicules in the right margin and in the left margin. But there are these other marks which are hard to describe, but there are three points and in a triangle shape and then sort of like a little tail or a line going from, from the top of the of the dots upwards. And these might be referred to as trefoils or one scholar has referred to this sort of marking as a tadpole. Um, and then there's one bracket. So I was obviously very excited because I thought, wow, well, only 20% of early modern books have marginalia in them, but this would be a great opportunity to study somebody who read Parr's book and to, you know, study one of her readers. But I started looking at these even more closely. Now they're quite faint, the, especially the graphite ones are quite faint, but I quickly realized that they looked identical to the markings that Henry VIII had made in some of his other books. And fortuitously, I had actually just been spending the last two weeks looking at Henry Salter in the British Library. So this is a very well known, it's digitized now, actually, you can see it online. Um, Henry Salter has these very famous images of him as David fighting Goliath and him reading in his bedchamber. But he also annotated that book quite heavily. And so I had been looking at some of those. And so when I was looking in Parr's book, uh, I thought that um, my instinct was that they were Henry's. So uh, cooler heads prevail, though. And I thought, well, I need I really need a sort of a method to determine whether these are Henry's or not. He had not he did not sign the book. Some of his books he signed, most of them he did not. Uh, but I realized that I was going to need to develop some sort of method to determine whether these were actually Henry. So I, I started photographing hundreds of, of manicules and trefoils from the British Library. Um, and in the end, I decided that they were almost certainly Henry's. Like, I'm convinced that they're Henry's. First of all, the shape of the hand is identical. So, you know, people actually have very distinctive uh, manicules. And if you Google online 16th century uh, manicules, you'll find tons of examples. Um, So the shape of the hand was identical. Henry had a very distinctive cuff on his manicule. So sort of at, at his wrists, 
almost like a, a shirt cuff uh, that's in a very distinctive shape. And they're identical in the Wormsley copy, Wormsley Library copy and the British Library copies. Uh, the way he placed it on the page was identical. So the one in the right margins point down at about a 30 degree angle. And all of his manicules in the left margins of his book actually point upwards at 40 degrees. So I measured all of the angles on these manicules and found that all of them matched identically. And then the last thing I did was I measured the size of them. And so the size from the, the distance from the tip of the index finger in the manicules in the Wormsley book are similar and can be matched with the size, the length of the, of the manicules that Henry drew elsewhere. So I decided that those four dis really distinctive features for me clinched it, especially the cuff. Uh, you know, Henry's cuff on his manicules is really distinctive. Yeah, and so here's a new body of uh, Corpus of Marginalia by Henry VIII in a book produced by his wife. It's absolutely extraordinary. And I know when you contacted me to share this, I was so excited. I was kind of like, didn't know what to do with myself, really. And I have had a look at some of those images. And I have to say, for what it's worth, I completely agree with you. I think especially the cuff, as you've mentioned, is, is really distinct. Now, I thought what we could do now is maybe if you can give our listeners a bit of an introduction, if they haven't perhaps heard of the Psalms or prayers before, would you maybe just tell us a little bit about it, what it's all about? Yeah, perfect. Right. So this is the first book that was published by Parr. It's a translation. It has, it's mostly comprised of what are called Psalms, but they're actually not biblical Psalms. So they're original prayers, which have been, it's, it's like the author stitched together verses from the Psalms and from some books by Solomon. But, so it's all biblical, mostly from verses from the Psalms. And so this author is like mashed them up or sort of stitched them together to create new prayers. Uh, Susan, the scholar Susan Felch has described these as collage Psalms, which I think is an excellent way of trying to understand what they are. So the first four are about repentance. So the speaker is very sorry for his sins and asks God for forgiveness. Uh, the next couple, three, are about wisdom. So the speaker is feeling distressed that he's so ignorant and he wants God to provide him with divine wisdom. But it's the next ones that become really interesting. So the next 10 are about enemies. So the speaker calls upon God to destroy, smash, burn his enemies. And then it concludes with some... Psalms thanking God sort of preemptively <laughs> for having destroyed those said enemies. And then so those so their 17 Psalms follow that sort of trajectory. So repentance, asking for wisdom, asking God to destroy your enemies and then thanking God for destroying your enemies. And um, then it concludes with two prayers. So one is a prayer for the king, which is very interesting. This is the first new English prayer for the king published in England. There were some traditional Latin prayers for the king, but this is um, different. And the last prayer is a prayer for men to say going into battle. So, you know, it's it's a prayer book, but it's important, I think, for, for people to realize that it's very different from, for example, a book of hours, right? This traditional prayer book, like the kind of book that uh, was owned by Thomas Cromwell and yes. Anne Boleyn and Catherine of Aragon that we've been hearing about. So the Psalms of Prayer is a prayer book, but it's about a war. You know, in that sense, I think it can be accurately described as a as a piece of wartime propaganda. I think this hypothesis that it's useful to think of it as both a prayer book and a piece of military propaganda is the dates that it was published on. So the dates, I think, are quite telling. The first edition was published on the 25th of April, 1544. I guess I should mention, actually, that Henry is currently at this time at war with both the Scottish and the French. And this is sort of the buildup. He leaves for war. He leaves for France in July of 1544. So the first edition of Parr's book 
that is published during the buildup. So on the 25th of April. And the second edition is the 25th of May. Now, these are not special days for us. But in early modern England, these were rogation days, or they were right before rogation days. And rogation days were days in the liturgical calendar where there were special processions in parish churches and also at courts. And it was because the, these rogations always happen in the spring. So there's a, a penitential procession and the speakers, the, the rites, the liturgy ask God to protect the community, especially against plague and drought and bad weather. So this helps the crops in the spring. And the other thing is rogation day processions often features prayers about war because war is usually resumed in the spring as they do today. And so it's really interesting. In other words, the days that Parr's books were published were not sort of coincidental. In fact, they were the precisely the perfect days to, to produce a prayer book, which is designed to help people think about war and, and pray for Henry's success. Now, another important thing just to note about the Psalms of Prayers, in addition to its, you know, bellicose content, is that it was published anonymously. So Parr's name does not appear on the text. And I think, you know, for many, for many years, no one really talked about this book in biographies of Parr. And that's the reason people didn't really know that it that it had been translated by Parr. But in um, 1999, Susan James, you know, published a biography, a very good biography of Parr. And she made a very strong argument that the Psalms of Prayers was translated by Catherine Parr. So she looks at a lot of verbal echoes with Parr's other works. But most importantly, she points out that some of Parr's contemporaries praised her in print for having, and I'm going to quote here, for composing and setting forth many goodly psalms, right? And so we find multiple references in print to Parr having set forth from her pen godly psalms. So you know, on the whole, I think everyone is thoroughly persuaded that this book was published by Parr. The final thing to to note about it is that even though Parr's name, so Parr's name is not on it, uh, but it was printed by the King's printer, Thomas Bertlett. And so many readers would not have known that it was printed by Parr, but they would have understood that this was a crown publication. You know, it's being issued by Bertlett, it's anonymous, it's about Henry's war. And in that sense, it is a crown publication about Henry's war. Yeah, that, that's extraordinary. The The dates are obviously very significant, as you say, and the, the context, really, really fascinating. So do you want to tell us about the some of those politically sensitive texts, say by Erasmus and George Witzel that, that Catherine translated? Yeah, so when, when you look really carefully at the content of this war, you know, wartime book, it's one of the most interesting things is that all of these pieces are actually quite politically sensitive. You know, they weren't straightforward. And the reason I sort of want to harp on this a bit that I, I think it's really important is because it, it makes us realize that Parr could not have produced this book just on her own, that she produced this book in consultation with Henry and probably also Thomas Cranmer. And I think that's important because sometimes we tend, sometimes uh, modern, you know, just in popular culture, we tend to think of Parr's writing as something that she sort of did in a room of her own. It was sort of something, even in the musical The Six, they sort of position it as, you know, she was more than just Henry's wife. She had this writing as if it's something different than her her role as consort. And I think that when, when we take into account the sensitive political nature of her sources, we realize this is a book that was that involved consultation. And that what it means, though, is that Parr is writing from the center of political power, not writing on the margins. The thing that's frustrating is that at the end of the day, it is a little bit hard to determine whose idea was it, right? So was this 
Parr's idea and Henry was on board or, you know, Parr is clearly the translator and she's the one who, as we'll talk about a little bit later, orders gift copies. But um, it's a little bit difficult to determine exactly whose idea it was. Did Henry ask Parr to do this? In which case you can really say no. Or was this Parr's idea? Was it Cranmer's idea? Right. But my big point is that this is a, a text that was done in collaboration and that it really comes from the center of political power. Um, so I'll just give one example for people about why I think say these sources are politically sensitive. And this is the most obvious example is that the Psalms are written by Bishop John Fisher in Latin. And of course, Henry had executed John Fisher in 1535 for refusing to take the, um, the oath of supremacy. And scholars have shown that Henry worked pretty hard to eradicate his memory in England. And so, you know, Parr could never on her own have decided, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to translate a work by John Fisher publish it. So it's also fascinating because it means that there must have been quite a discussion. There must have been a lot of political calculus around this text, right? Henry must have been convinced that this text was sufficiently valuable at this particular junction to warrant printing a text by his, one of his most hated enemies. So there must have, you know, it, it makes us think, and there must have been some just kind of discussions around that. Now, obviously, Fisher's name does not appear on the text, right? So Parr's name doesn't appear and Fisher's name doesn't appear. Um, but still, there must have been some kind of discussion about the risks, the potential risks or benefits of reprinting one of John Fisher's works. The other prayer that sort of also sort of sheds light on how Parr was dealing with sensitive material in this book is just the prayer for the king. So as I mentioned earlier, so this is a short sort of two page prayer for Henry. It's the first new English language prayer for Henry. So it's it's a big deal. And again, this is not something that Parr could have just decided to do on her own. It's even more interesting because one of the things I, I discovered in 2015 is that this is actually a translation of a prayer by Georg Witzel, who was a German Catholic, and it was a prayer written for the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, at first, I thought I couldn't believe it was by Georg Witzel, but then actually it kind of makes sense because what it means is that Henry and Parr are tra Parr is translating this prayer, adapting a prayer because the Holy Roman Emperor is, is Henry's ally in this war, right? So Henry and Charles V are aligned against Scotland and France. And so we can think of, of, of this decision, the most likely hypothesis, I think, is that Henry Parr and Cranmer sort of decided that this was a smart diplomatic move, would be to, to take a prayer for the Holy Roman Empire, translate it into English, and then Henry and, and the emperor's subjects in these two disparate countries fighting together are saying the same prayers for their rulers. Yeah, so that so anyway, that's what I mean by politically sensitive sources. Yeah, it's so fascinating thinking of them all sitting together around a table or, or being somewhere in one of their palaces discussing it. And so you talked there about obviously that it's Psalms, but it's also like wartime propaganda. Do you want to delve into that a little bit more, the role that Catherine Parr plays in producing it and disseminating this, this propaganda? Yeah, I mean, it's really quite surprising. I mean, that was one of the most surprising things that I, I took away from once I started studying this book. I did not expect that when I first started looking at this book. Um, of course, Parr has always been recognized as having played a major role as regent, right? So Henry VIII leaves for France to lay siege to Boulogne in July of 1544, and he appoints Parr as regent. 
And there's been, you know, all biographies or film versions or TV versions of this show, you know, Parr, he he entrusts half of the council to stay with Captain Parr. She's acting as Henry. She's issuing proclamations. She's writing letters. She's dealing with lots of logistics, right? And that's sort of very well established. But I think what's so interesting about the Psalms or prayers then is that it, it indicates, it shows us that even before she was appointed regent, she was already playing an important role in the buildup to the war by producing this kind of propaganda. When we think of her as a, you know, participating in this project, producing this prayer for Henry is really interesting because it's it's like a, it's a verbal image of him, right? And Henry was very careful, like the royal image was very important and carefully monitored and and it's just so interesting that he would entrust or ask par to produce this prayer for him, which all of his subjects were supposed to use. And so seeing the degree, just seeing how much she was really embedded in the wartime strategy was quite surprising to me. And I think really, we need to sort of incorporate that more into our understanding of Parr. Yeah, and it's fascinating. Obviously, he very much had confidence in her abilities as yeah. well and valued her very much. I know he also left Catherine of Aragon as regent at one point early yes. on in his reign, and it's interesting to see him. And there was talk of him possibly leaving Anne Boleyn had that relationship not gone the way it did. So it's, it's interesting that he did, given all his bravado, he did have confidence in the women in his life, which is which is really fascinating. Now, I want to talk about these deluxe copies that you've talked about before. We, you know, I absolutely love these books. And she she made, Catherine made some deluxe copies to give away as gifts. So could you tell us about this particular practice, maybe some of the surviving copies, and also importantly, I suppose, the insights that they offer us? So I, th- I think you've actually had a couple of presenters already uh, on this show who've talked about gift culture and gift exchange at court. And so, right, gift culture is very, a very central part of, of court culture. Monarchs exchanged gifts with their subjects on, especially on New Year's, that was a, a very sort of formal, ritualized gift exchange on New Year's. Um, But gifts were given at court all year round. So we find lots of evidence of, you know, of venison and and deers being sent and jewels and clothing. And there's all kinds of gift exchange going on. Of course, it's it's one of the ways in which patronage is distributed. It's one of the ways in which people try to curry favor with their social superiors. It's one of the ways in which social superiors sort of bind their inferiors to them. So it's it's a very important practice. Um, And there are lots of lots of evidence of books being given. Of course, books are portable, they're gorgeous. You can also make religious statements or political statements through books in ways that you can't with, say, a side of venison. And there are lots of records of books that are, you know, given as gifts, they're encrusted with jewels, or they're covered in gold, they have gorgeous bindings, they have embroidery, all those kinds of things. So so we know then that Parr participated in gift giving, and in particular, in giving copies not only just of books, but of her own books, which is really quite striking. And we know that she distributed gift copies from two sources. So first of all, there are some book bills. So in Catherine Parr's chamber accounts, there are three book bills that seem to point to, you know, the fact that she ordered, paid for, carefully thought about deluxe copies of her books that she was going to give out to people. So uh, in 1544, she ordered 14 copies of what are called psalm prayers, which I assume um, are the psalms and prayers that I'm going to, the copies I'm going to talk about in a second. Um, And these are described as being gorgeously bound and gilt on the leather. Um, There's also uh, a book bill from 1547. So when Catherine Parr was a dowager, she actually ordered 
well, a copy of the Psalms or prayers, so one copy of the Psalm prayers, but then 30 copies of what are just called prayer books, but everyone agrees they're her second book, the prayers or meditations. Uh, and it's so interesting. She was obviously thought very carefully about all the details. So some of them are in white satin and cost a certain amount. Some of them are in leather. They cost a different amount. Some are on vellum. Some are not on vellum. Some are in big format. Some are in a smaller format. So she's obviously carefully thinking about how much she's spending on different people and the different sort of, oh, we all do this at Christmas, right? <laughs> you know, figuring out who's who's getting what um, based on all kinds of past gift giving practices and obligations and stuff. So that's one sort of source of evidence of her gift giving. But then, you know, what's super exciting to me and what I've been working on are the are the actual copies of themselves. So there are five extant copies of the Psalms or prayers, the, these gift copies. Three of them are from 1544. So these were presumably some of the ones in the book bill from 1544. And two of them are actually from 1545. And they are smaller editions. And they have very different decorative programs. So hopefully, I don't know if I'm going to work on them, but it'd be great if someone worked on them, um, the ones from 1545. So all of these, the five though, are on vellum. Uh, like I mentioned, they're hand illuminated. So in terms of the insights then, I mean, besides just being beautiful, right? I think that there are a couple of important things that we can take away from these books. I think they provide insights then into her activities, both as author and as queen. So one thing we learn when we look at these books as a group is that Parr not only printed her books then to be disseminated through Bertlett's bookstore, which was in Fleet Street, right? So she not only engaged in sort of the widespread dissemination of her books, which is already super cool, <laughs> but she also then engaged in this different kind of authorship, which we might refer to as social authorship. And that's where you have an author who distributes maybe one of their copies as a gift to specific recipients um, who are known to them. And in that context, the book is more of a gift than a commodity. And recognizing then looking at these gift books and realizing that Parr engaged in so social authorship made me think or maybe wonder about it sort of open new questions, which is, well, what did they expect in return, right? These books are obviously part of some kind of complex social transaction. And what was the kind of reciprocity? What were they hoping to get back, right? Because one of the things anthropologists have taught us is that gift giving often usually entails some sort of reciprocity, right? So if they're giving this gift, what is it that they're hoping to get in return? Now, the book itself provides a very easy answer to that, which is that loyalty, right? So they're, they're bestowing prestige on the people who they're giving these gift books to. It's also worth noting that each of these gift books is a little bit different. So, you know, they're making them special for each recipient. They're honoring these recipients, showing that they're special. Okay, so what do they want in return? Well, they want loyalty, obviously. And I think they also really want prayers, right? They want like, so if you receive this book, in theory, you're sort of bound then to pray for Henry on a daily basis, to use these prayers of repentance, to call upon God to destroy Henry's enemies, to pray for his army, and to pray for him. And, you know, in thinking about the book this way, I think we have to remember that in the early modern period, people really believed in the efficacy of wartime prayer, right? They really believed that you needed to have a good army, but you also needed God on your side. And when we remember that, I think we can see that Parr and, Parr and Henry are actually asking for something valuable in return for this gift. 
Um, the other really interesting thing I think about looking at these books and thinking about par giving them through a, a form of social authorship is that we realize that in that exchange, par would have been very visible, right? So, and that's very different from the copies that were sold in Bertlett's bookstore, where most of those people would not have known that Parr was the author, right? And so queenship or female authorship would not have been part of their reading experience. They would have understood this as a crown publication, but they would have no idea that it was produced by a queen. Whereas the people receiving the gifts from Parr, of course, <laughs> realize that Parr is the author. So she's a consort, but she's an author. She's giving them a gift. So it's it's just would have been sort of in everyone's face or very highly visible that the author is the consort and the giver and that the recipient is the subject and the receiver of a female authored, consort authored political text. And so I think that dynamic is really different. And I think we need to Again, incorporate that into our understanding of of Parr and her her experience at court. Yeah, there's so much that's so interesting and so much food for thought there. I'm like jotting down things and, and all these questions are coming up, but I'm thinking there are interesting parallels with what authors do today, right? We send books to, to people once we've published our books, which is quite interesting. Perhaps we're not looking for loyalty or press, but but we're certainly looking for help in, in spreading the message, aren't we? So there are yeah, interesting yeah, parallels yeah. there. If you give a book to someone and they just don't respond, like it would be so odd, right? There's always some sort of, it's creating some sort of bond, right? It yeah. absolutely is. You know, you'd expect at least a thank you, a little, you know, a message in return. So it's very interesting that this is already obviously what's what's happening in the 16th century. Fascinating. And that it's Catherine Parr that's so actively taking part in this as well. So let's go back to the marginalia, the King's marginalia you discovered. I'm just thinking also how terrifying having Henry read your book, <laughs> to review your book, so to speak. Could you tell us about what his writing and those markings actually reveal about his final illness and perhaps the state of mind that he was in towards the end of his life? Yeah, great question. So this is the fun part, right? Like, what does this marginalia <laughs> tell us about Henry? So it's actually not what I at first thought. But I, th I mean, I think it's a little bit, maybe it's not what we would expect. We tend to think of Henry, of course, like you said, you'd be afraid of him reading your, your book, right? Because he's, we think of him being supremely confident, right? There being no bounds on his authority or, you know, whatever he wants to do. But the marginalia reveals a reader who is actually quite anxious, anxious that he's sinful, that he's ignorant, um, and that he was angering God, but at the same time, and so, you know, in trying to, in trying to think about this marginalia, I looked both at the passages that he did highlight. And remember, this is a 180 page book and, and he did only make 14 markings, right? So obviously this is quite selective. All the marginalia is really clustered in Psalm 4, Psalm 5, and Psalm seven. Um, you know, he might have read the book on a different day and been thinking very different things, but we don't have a record of that. But what we do have a record of then on the days that he was reading this was that he was very anxious. But at the same time, he's also sort of hopeful, right? So the passages are both sort of despairing about the speaker's sinfulness, but also very hopeful. Many of the passages sort of are hopeful that God will forgive him will heal him, and will sort of set him on a straight path. So there's sort of a, a mixture there. I'll just give you some examples. So in the fourth Psalm, uh, which is about repentance, he puts two manacles 
beside passages that are both actually about physical suffering, physical suffering, which is understood as a punishment for sin. And of course, these are very poignant. We know that Henry was obese at the end of his life, that he was very ill. He had a rot, you know, a rotting leg, a, a, an ulcer that wouldn't heal. And so, you know, it's very easy for him to, to think about. In other words, these annotations make sense. So I'll just read one of them. So he says, one of the passages that he puts a manicule beside Ben is, take away thy plagues from me, for thy punishment hath made me both feeble and faint. And the second one that he annotates is, turn thy anger away from me, that I may know that thou art more merciful unto me than my sins deserve. And later on, just two lines later is a passage, my flesh is not made of brass, right? So in both of these, he's, and it's interesting to think of, of Henry, you know, he's the anointed king, he's God's chosen, but he's sick, right? And so God is punishing him. And he's obviously upset about this, right? And so he's he's really hoping, you know, God is punishing his weak body. He's feeling feeble and faint. And he's, I, I like to think of him sort of confronting some ugly truths in the margin here. We know that in public, he refused to acknowledge that he was sick. And in the buildup to the war, the imperial ambassador was hoping that he wouldn't even come because he was in such bad physical shape. They were hoping that he just wouldn't come in person, but that nobody dared tell him that he had the worst legs in the world. So those are his exact words, the ambassador. So here, so, but Henry, you know, no one could tell him, but here we see Henry is actually confronting this, that his God is making him feeble and faint. And he he's distressed about this. But again, we see that at the same time that he's sort of confronting this unfortunate reality about him, you can see that he's also, he's doing the right thing, right? He's appealing to God. So as he's making this mark, he's both sort of bemoaning his situation, but he's also showing that he's doing the right thing. He's a good king and he's asking God to heal him and to make him better. So that's sort of one group of two annotations that are about physical suffering. 10 of his annotations though, are about wisdom and ignorance. So whatever he was thinking when he was reading this, he was obviously quite anxious that he was not wise enough or that he lacked sufficient wisdom, that he was ignorant, that he was walking in error. You know, he talks about walking not in the right path. He's walk walking in the wrong path. I could just read you one of those. He says, let thy spirit teach me the things that be pleasant unto thee, that I may be led into the straight way out of error, where I have wandered over long. So in a number of these passages, he's um, he talks a lot about it's his sinfulness that's making him ignorant. He needs God to send, to inspire him, to send him wisdom so that he can get on the right path. And it's interesting in this fifth Psalm, when you look at what he didn't annotate, there are lots of passages that are actually quite beautiful where the speaker is talking about how he's inflamed with love for divine wisdom or wisdom is sweeter than honey and thanking God for making him wise. But Henry did not annotate any of those passages. The passages that he annotated are the ones where he's worried that God's mad at him for walking <laughs> down the wrong path and he wants God to help him. Um, and I'll just read the very last annotation that he makes because it's it's sort of bleak. He says, and this is an ink. This is an ink trefoil. Oh, Lord God, forsake me not, although I have done no good in thy sight. So he's worried wow. about being forsaken. Yeah. 
again, we don't know what order he made those in, but just in the book itself, that's the last annotation. So the impression then that I get from these markings is that, as I've said, Henry is anxious, worried that he's not acting in ways that are wise, that he's angering God, but also, right, that he's an exemplary monarch insofar as he's recognizing this and he's asking get God to help them. And I do read these as sort of private or personal but the way I see them, I also think it's important to realize that Henry was never really alone mm -hmm. and that his reading was observed by other people. And so I do think even though these are personal, I think it's possible to also read them as a little bit performative in the sense that, you know, he's also showing that he's an exemplary monarch insofar as he's turning to God. So I do think they're personal, but I think it's important to remember that we can read them also as performative. And here we are today talking about his manicule. Then he knew that people, right, like he was never really alone, even in his bedchamber. People had to move his books from him as they moved from palace to palace. And so he may have also made these with an understanding that people would view him and view his, his marginalia and interpret something about him based on those. But when we think about why he might have been so anxious also, it's, it's actually not that hard. As you mentioned the last year, we all know sort of that the last couple of years of his life were really tough. He's quite ill and he's facing the prospect of an underage king after all of the drama of his life to try to ensure a stable succession you know, Henry, Edward is either eight or nine at the time that Henry is probably making these annotations. How should Henry plan for a regency government? What kind of council should he put in place? What families should he favor? Should he favor the reformer? Should he favor the traditionalist? Is he balancing? Is he setting up the checks and balances in a way that's going to work? He may also have been about, anxious just about his own religious policies and the state of sort of spiritual health in the country. So in the last two years of his reign, I think 10 or something Protestants were convicted and burnt of heresy. So he could also be anxious about, has he failed as a monarch to contain heresy? Is this the right approach? Maybe his own religious views are changing. Like it, it's impossible to pin him down. But I guess my my point is that there's there are a lot of things for him to be anxious about. And so I think that that looking at this marginalia sort of helps us to, I think that we can sort of correlate some of this marginalia then to things that we know were going on in the last year or six months of his life. Yeah, I think what you've found here is absolutely extraordinary because it does offer a little insight into Henry's inner and landscape that is so difficult to get a kind yeah. of hold on, even if you've been studying him for so long. And it's funny, you're reading those passages and I'm thinking, oh, I hope he was reflecting on this, you know, that he did all that, that he yeah, did. Yeah. But also at the same time, I was kind of wondering... Was he being genuine? Because as you say, he yeah. was a perennial performer and he used yeah. every opportunity to kind of present this image of himself. So I, I have a few trust issues with Henry Michelet. Yeah, so I don't know yeah, yeah. You know. So that's, you know, that's why I, I, I can't read these as just 100% private, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I just feel, and in fact, in my article, I sort of argued more for reading them in a performative way as, yeah. You know, and then Parr is sort of part of that, right? So her book then provides a vehicle for him to, you know, both sort of confess his weaknesses, but at the same time show that he's pious and he's doing all the right things. 
Yeah, it's so interesting, that tension between the two. And I, I do think, though, that it does offer perhaps a kernel of truth, because I think in at many different points during Henry's reign, it's quite clear that it, he often feels inadequate. And so it's interesting that he's reflecting on that mm-hmm. wisdom, and, because I think inadequacy was, was quite an issue for the king. And I think that's when he lashed out quite brutally when people yeah, made him yeah. feel inadequate, you know, he, he became yes. dangerous. Yeah. So it's, oh, it's yeah. so much that, you know, that you can kind of reflect on from just those passages. It's, it's really, really fascinating. So just building on what you said about inadequate. So that's just so perfect with, you're making me look at this verse again in a new way. So oh, one of his things is he says, if any seem to be perfect among men, yet if thy wisdom forsake him, he shall be reckoned nothing worth, right? So he's yeah. anxious about being worth nothing. Yeah. Yes, and, and I think that was what, you know, he often hid that when he was young and, of course, oh, attractive, okay. and, and that that was sort of hidden quite deeply. But I think once he becomes very ill, he's, he's incredibly dangerous when he's feeling like that. So it, it's so fascinating, that tension, again, between, you know, is this a genuine reflection on his, his reign and his life, or is he once again being Henry the, the performer, you know? So you've talked a little bit, of course, about this this new role. It sounds like to me it's a new role that Paz kind of invented for herself, obviously in consultation, you know, with Henry. But as queen consul and author, this this dynamic there is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Did you want to say anything else about that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because I first approached Par right because I come from an English literature background. I thought of her first as a writer, and then people sort of like, oh yeah, she's a queen, right? But But in English departments, often she's approached as a writer, one of many writers. There are several royal writers. You know, Margaret Beaufort had actually published some translations in 1507 and 1509. But the more I started working on par, the more I started realizing, no, the fact that she's the consort is actually really important. And she's she's a consort writer. And so she's different from other consorts, but she's also different from other writers. And so I became sort of very intrigued by this, this combination, because of course, the consort had many roles, right? Produce heirs, assist the king, run a household, dispense patronage, display exemplary piety, uh, you know, be educated. And we know, well, as you know, very well, you know, Anne Boleyn and Catherine of Aragon are highly educated. They're very bookish. They have, they commission lots of books. Books are dedicated to them. They, they read a lot. Reading is important to them. But what's different about Par then is that she's, she's not just bookish. She's also an author. And then that her books are tied to the, they're at the heart of the crown's activities, right? They're they're not separate from her role as consort, right? So I think that for her, like, and for Henry, at this point, like her literary activity is one of the ways that she's, that she serves the crown, right? She's part of the crown. She's part of the mechanism of monarchy. And so in her case, literary activity becomes one of the ways she serves the crown. And one of the things I think is is interesting is you can detect a shift in the language that people use when they're talking about Par, I think, in response to this. So at the very beginning of her reign, you know, all the ambassadors are sending letters congratulating Henry and people are talking about Par and they, they describe her as serene, beautiful, prudent, gentle, wise. But over time, you can see that people are sort of struggling to formulate new language to describe what she's doing. And so, you know, one person 
praises her because she has a mind framed for pious study. Someone else praises her for her studious diligence, right? Which is not how you think normally queen, right? For her studious diligence. She's referred to as the most learned queen. So the most interesting, I think, display of sort of the way some people who were obviously fans of hers were were trying to sort of create use new language to describe what she was doing so this is nicholas udall who wrote five dedications praising par that were part of the paraphrases of erasmus's paraphrases that were published under edward um but he describes her as a writer but also as a military captain so he says and as a good captain who leadeth and guideth his army so your grace, far otherwise than in the weak vessels of women's sex is to be looked for, do show unto men a notable example of forwardness in setting pen to the book. It's just amazing, That's right? Amazing, so I mean, yeah. women are supposed to be humble. They're not supposed to be forward. They're not supposed to be captains. <laughs> They're not supposed to be leading people into battle. But this is how he imagines her her role as consort, that she's forward and also that she's setting an example to men um, to be forward in setting the pen to their book. So I just find that so interesting. It took me a while to sort of notice that. But I think when you look at all the people sort of talking about her, you realize that they have to come up with a new kind of vocabulary. And just in thinking about bringing this really interesting conversation to a close, I just wanted to ask you a couple of more sort of general things about Catherine and perhaps her role in the in the reform movement in the early years of Edward VI's reign. Yeah, so I'm actually working on that right now. Oh, excellent. Um, yeah, so I think her role, again, as part of the crown under Edward has been underestimated. Um, I think we quite naturally get distracted by some of the Thomas Seymour, Elizabeth stuff, and rightly so. But I think there's a lot to be said about her household under Edward, where she is Queen Dowager. You know, so for example, I recently realized that she actually held a Monday Thursday service Ooh, when she was she? Dowager. Wow. Yeah. So she's obviously still sort of flexing her royal yes. muscles there. That's quite um, a flex because Henry refused to allow Catherine of Aragon to hold one when, you know, when she was sort of I know. in disgrace. So that, that's yeah. really fascinating. And her lamentation of a sinner, I think is, well, I mean, there's so many great studies of that book. Um, but I do think that more can be said about how it was closely tied to what was going on in the government at the time. So there were, it's very closely tied, I believe, to Cranmer's homilies. And, you know, it, it was issued the day before Parliament opened. It's sponsored by her brother, who's an MP, a member of the Privy Council. It's sponsored by the Duchess of Suffolk, who is the patron of many people in Parliament. And so, again, I think there, are, uh, we need to do more work in trying to understand how Catherine Parr's activities under Edward were really were matters of state. Um, also, like the paraphrases, she's the sponsor of the para Erasmus's paraphrases, and they're printed with a title page compartment that has Edward's coat of arms and her coat of arms. And all of these dedications are about her central role in sort of as a part of the monarchy still. And so it's true that she was not appointed to be regent, but I think that that doesn't mean that she wasn't still an essential part of the crown and doing sort of crown-related religious work. 
Yeah, I look forward to hearing more about that because you're <laughs> right. I think it does get overshadowed by the kind of personal dramas that are that are happening around her, obviously, like you said, Thomas Seymour and Elizabeth. Now, throughout Catherine Parr's reign and and after, there's a there's a young, very precocious girl <laughs> observing absolutely everything that she's doing. And that's of course her stepdaughter Elizabeth. So in what ways do you think Catherine, she sounds absolutely extraordinary. In what ways do you think she influenced the lady or the Princess Elizabeth, however you'd like to to refer to her as? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the standard view, you probably agree with me, the standard view is that. Parr played a formative influence, particularly in Elizabeth's political education. So, and, and training. And I think that that's absolutely right. You know, I think a lot of scholars have got that absolutely right. Elizabeth was at court while Parr was regent. And this is something that is emphasized in pretty much, I think, every sort of movie or TV version that I've seen of this. You know, there's always a moment or actually in the Elizabeth Fremantle book where, you know, Elizabeth sort of says like, oh, you know, the queen can be in charge. Right. So, you know, I think and I I think that's right. I think surely Elizabeth seeing Parr acting as regent must have been inspired and empowered. And, you know, Parr provides an example there for her, which which you will be able to come back to. Um, but I think that the some of the stuff about Parr's gift books, I think, also open new avenues for thinking about Parr's influence on Elizabeth. Because I think Parr's gift books provide a new framework for thinking about Elizabeth's gift books. So Elizabeth very famously produced four, one of them is lost, but deluxe gift books for Catherine Parr and Henry in 1544 and 1545. So that's only like nine months after Catherine Parr would have first been giving out her books, right? So I think it's it's not crazy to hypothesize that you know, Elizabeth would have learned something very important about the power of gift giving and the power of the book as a gift and, you know, and strategies for, you know, we could say she's inspired by part, but I think more than that, I think she sort of learned something very important about the politics, probably learned something important about the politics of gift giving and then sort of use that, you know, so I think Parr's gift books were probably a model for Elizabeth's. Uh, the other thing that I think is important to to emphasize about her her influence on Elizabeth is that, well, we realize later that one of the first things that Elizabeth does when she comes into power um, in her chapel is, and I, I published a piece on this in 2015, one of the first things she does is she has Parr's prayer for the king inserted into the litany even before parliament has met and before the the new liturgy committee has met to determine the book of common prayer. And this is just so fascinating, right? So Parr, obviously, obviously this prayer made a huge impression on her. Probably, I would hypothesize that while Henry was away, Elizabeth is with Parr, they probably said that prayer every day. It was a prayer that would have been that Elizabeth translated three times in 1545 when she produced the gift book for Henry of Parr's prayers, because the Prayer for the King was also in, in that prayer book. Um, but it's so interesting then when she suddenly is the queen regnant, she decides that she's going to take a prayer that Parr wrote for Henry and she's going to make it mandatory for every single person in England to say that prayer for her, right? And 
uh, it appears first in her chapel because she sort of has power to do things that aren't really legal yet. So she introduces the prayer into the litany there. But then once the Book of Common Prayer is published officially in June of 1559, that prayer is part of the Book of Common Prayer. So I think that that just knowing that really allows us to reconstruct the degree to which Elizabeth was profoundly shaped by by Parr's literary works. So fascinating. And what a great place to to bring this conversation to an end. You've given us so much to think about. There's one more thing, and then I promise I'll let you get on with your day. And that's the Tudor takeaway that I ask all my guests for a suggestion for something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. So do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? Well, I am reading uh, The Queen's Gambit right now by Elizabeth Fremantle. Almost finished with it. So I highly recommend it. What I really enjoyed was how she explores the relationship between Parr and Margaret Neville, who was her stepdaughter. And, you know, to be honest, I'd never really thought very much about Margaret Neville before. So I found that really fascinating uh, to think about sort of the role that Parr played as a sort of a stepmother to her after the girl's father dies, Lord Latimer. Um, And I also just love that there's so much of it is focused on this Dorothy Fountain character, who's a chambermaid or chamberer in, in Parr's household, and just sort of thinking about Parr's relationship to the people who served her. And it also just provides a, another look at, at the court. But yeah, I really enjoyed that. Also, just tell us about where some people, because I'm sure now our listeners want to follow your work, want to read more. What can they do? Where can they go to, to see what you're up to? So if they want to read this article about Catherine Parr's gift books, um, it's published in Renaissance Quarterly. Um, the most recent edition of Renaissance Quarterly. They can also, I'm on Twitter. I mostly tweet about Catherine Barr. We love that. Other And Catherine Barr's ladies-in-waiting, Catherine Brandon. Um, yeah, I mostly tweet about Tudor stuff and I retweet a lot of interesting things. So yeah, and otherwise, you know, my Carlton website is always has updates of new things that I publish. So if people are interested, they could check that out. Fantastic. And I will put, I'll put a link to that article and um, in the show notes so that that's nice and easy for people right. to find. But thank you so much for this absolutely fascinating discussion. It's been an absolute pleasure talking Tudors with you. Oh, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.